I was really excited. I had gone to school for this field and gotten a job in that field, which everybody assured me was totally impossible. Meet Michael. He's talking about his very first job right out of school. So I felt really good about that. Every day was something new, was developing a skill set. Sounds pretty good, right? But then something changed. Over time, those positives slowly start to dissipate and you're kind of only left with negative thoughts and feelings. But here's the thing. Nothing had really happened. There was never this blow up or fight or something that traumatic that happened. It was just a kind of passage of time. I was at the wrong company. The wrong company. For lots of people, like Michael, this discovery happens too late, after they've gotten the job. But what if, before you chose the wrong one, there was a way to help identify the right company, the right boss, the right role, especially early in your career? Welcome to For the Love of Work, an original podcast made possible by Rogers. My name is Sonia Kang. I'm a professor of organizational behavior, and I study the psychology of people at work. And this, this is a show that explores what to do when you get stuck at work. It happens to most people at some point in their careers. You find yourself in a situation that's just not working, while others find themselves at progressive companies that focus on something called the employee experience, a holistic approach to working that puts your needs first. So this is where we're gonna look for solutions. Whether you're already working somewhere or just starting a job search, we're gonna help you figure out how to make the decision about where and for whom you should work. There are lots of situations where sometimes you just need a job and you need money. I've been in those situations, I totally get it. Jacob Morgan researches how employees and the companies that hire them can do a better job. But finding the right job for you means being a part of it. I mean, it's kind of like uh, being in a relationship with somebody, right? His latest book is called The Future Leader. In part, it explores the relationship between leaders and their employees. I mean, we all know what being in a relationship with the right person and with the wrong person means. And that same analogy applies to organizations. Just like the relationships we choose to get into, where we decide to work is super important. In fact, choosing the right company early in our careers can make a huge difference. Work is where we spend most of our time, where we make social connections, grow our skill set, and hopefully, where we can find some meaning in our lives. What do you care about? What do you want? What is your ideal scenario? What kind of a leader do you want to be working with? What kind of a team do you want to be a part of? You need to have a little bit of self-awareness there. So that's a lot of questions, but taking time to answer them is worth it. Your early work experiences can set the course for your entire career. So the sooner you can get on a path that works for you, the better. But all of this self-awareness and knowing yourself can get tricky. Unfortunately, we're not very well prepared to make big decisions about things like where we'll work. And that's because there's very little formal training we get about this incredibly important topic of how to make better decisions. If you want formal training, talk to Katie Milkman. She studies and teaches decision-making about work, school, money, everything at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. I mean, think about how prepared you are right now or how prepared you were, especially at the beginning of your career, to make an informed choice about where to work. Did you know the right questions to ask? 
what your career path could look like, or what to do when your decision is derailed by a wild card, like a bad boss. Even if we've thought through some of this stuff, we can still get stuck if we internalize this idea that we have to do our time in the bad place in order to get to the good place. We're going to get into some of the critical factors you should be considering in a bit, but first, let's look at ourselves. One of the things Katie and I study are the cognitive biases that we all have. They often unconsciously guide us to the wrong decision, even when we think we're making the right one. Overconfidence can lead us to overestimate our ability and how we compare to others. And as we're thinking about a job where we're going to be able to flourish, being overconfident in various skills and how we'll be able to grow could actually hurt us and lead us to take the wrong position because we'll be overconfident about our ability to compensate. And that's exactly what Michael did. He's the guy we heard from earlier. I didn't love the projects, but I felt like I was learning something. And so I felt like I could take something away from it. You know, it was one of those things where you're cutting your teeth. He chose the company where he could learn some stuff and grow his resume. That was the trade-off. And it makes sense. Build experience first, worry about the other stuff later. So the work started to get a little bit stale. There was also just a kind of commuter culture where, you know, everybody was in at 9 and out at 5. And at 5.01, the office was completely vacant. There wasn't a real strong sense of camaraderie or friendship amongst uh, the staff. In sacrificing camaraderie, Michael had been influenced by another bias. People tend to underappreciate how important their daily experiences um, and how intrinsically motivating those daily experiences are going to be to how well they perform towards big goals. Even if a company makes sense for your career goals, it might not be the best fit if there's no chemistry. And so a year into working at what was supposed to be the right job, at least for this beginning part of his career, Michael realized he was at the wrong company. And the biggest problem with getting stuck there? I was at the wrong company for at least a year and a half. He stayed stuck. Human beings tend to stick to the path of least resistance. We really dislike change and effort when we can avoid it. Um, And so that's one reason that we often stick to a routine or an employer or even a marriage that isn't working that well for us longer than we should. There's also something called escalation of commitment, where once we've invested in something, we really, really don't like the idea of sort of throwing that away, ignoring the sunk cost, which we can't recover, which would be the right thing to do. The sunk cost bias is a big factor that can keep you stuck. I paid so much for this education. I spent so much time landing this job. And that can work against you if, for example, you come across new or growing industries. They offer great career opportunities, but you have to be willing to pivot. For other people, the sunk cost bias has them stuck on the investment they've made in their personal relationships with coworkers or managers and not wanting to disappoint them. So just like with other decisions we make, work and career decisions can get sidetracked by our biases. You want to make decisions based on a cold, cool, analytical state of mind. You want to get outside opinions, ideally from experts. You want to sleep on it. And you literally make a spreadsheet with the costs and the benefits and try to weight those different costs and benefits by how much they matter to you. Katie's idea to make a decision spreadsheet with costs and benefits is related to a concept I teach in a negotiations course. It's about creating scoring systems for decisions where you identify and weight different aspects. This should help you understand which choice points are most important. Let's say you're comparing a few apartments. 
a lot of people would just make a call based on how they generally feel. This is tough to do, and we often fall victim to various decision-making biases. A better way is to break down the decision into different factors. For example, neighborhood, distance to subway, time to work, distance to grocery store, square footage, price. Make a list of everything that's important to you and then assign each of those factors a value out of 100 to indicate how important the factors are relative to each other. Then give each option, apartment A, apartment B, apartment C, a score on each factor. Multiply by the value you gave it and add it all up to see which one wins. You could do the same thing with comparing different jobs or different companies to help find the one that's truly right for you. But I I do want to say, don't ignore your emotions, your instincts entirely. Those actually belong in your spreadsheet. So if there's something that is leading you to feel like this is not the right job for you, whatever that is, put that in there. It's just that you don't want to rely too much on that quick thinking. Okay, don't ignore your feelings but don't let them make the decision for you. The point is, by better understanding our biases and making decisions more analytically, for example, by using a decision spreadsheet, we'll be in a better position to land at the right company, the one that plays to our strengths and passions, which is key. But in order to do that, we need more work-related data to enter into that spreadsheet. For this, let's explore the employee experience. Do you want to be part of an organization that treats you fairly, that lets your voice be heard, where they're going to coach and train you and where you have workplace flexibility, where the organization genuinely cares about you and you feel that? At the beginning of the show, Jacob Morgan compared work to being in a relationship. He wrote about this relationship in a book called The Employee Experience Advantage. In it, he writes that companies need to be much more considerate of each employee's experience by focusing on three environments that the organization can control, which are culture, technology, and physical space. Culture is about how employees feel working for the organization. Organizational culture is made up of many, many things that we'll explore throughout this series. Technology is about the tools and resources employees have access to to do their jobs. And physical space is exactly what it sounds like. It's the spaces in which employees work. Any company can basically control and shape those three things. The employee experience grew out of something called the customer experience. The customer experience is about removing any friction or obstacles for the customer. Progressive companies are now applying that same philosophy to employees. Because at its most basic level, if a company's employees are unhappy, their customers will become unhappy too. And then the other reason that employers care so much about the employee experience is that in some sectors, there's intense competition for talent. So you can't just pay people more money anymore. They care about growth and development, uh, the impact that the organization has on the world and the environment and communities. A lot of employees are starting to ask different questions. And what that means is that if you want to create this environment where people genuinely want to be there, then you have to focus on the experience of your people. Culture, technology, and the spaces where you work. Just as progressive companies are designing customized experiences for their customers, they should be designing positive experiences for you, the employee. And to be clear, we're not just talking about ping pong tables or free lunch. The modern employee experience is much more than that. These are some of the things you should look for. When we meet new people, it doesn't usually take too long for the conversation to drift into the topic of what we do for work. 
Uh, the workplace is an extension of that image of ourselves and our professional identity. Pete Basevice is right. Professional identity is a major component of our overall identities. Pete thinks about how to develop and protect that sense of identity from a physical design perspective. How the office looks and can say a lot about who we are as an organization. So it can also say a lot about us as individuals. Pete is a social scientist and researcher at HLW, an architecture and design firm. And he's saying that the very design of the office we work in, if we work in an office, can affect the way we feel about ourselves. It can also affect how we act. So psychologists and designers will often use the term affordances to describe the connection between design and and how they influence our actions. When Pete says affordance, he's talking about the way our environments encourage us to act. Have you ever messed up and tried to push open a door that you're supposed to pull? That's not your fault. That's bad design affordance. In the same way, workplace design, good and bad, can impact our behavior. And that's where things get very interesting. The presence, for example, of a cafe or a pantry in a central location within an office is an invitation to to use it. Uh, Its placement near meeting areas can suggest that it's a place where meetings might also happen. The presence of whiteboards or other writable surfaces throughout an office uh, could also be encouraging people to work around them, share ideas, and learn from each other. I would focus on this idea of, of hospitality. It reinforces a culture of pro-social behavior. So you want people to, to act in a positive way towards each other. There are many ways that design can be used like this to nudge behavior in one direction or another. In this case, Pete is describing a design that encourages more interaction and therefore more collaboration. As companies start to emphasize teamwork, it makes sense they would use workplace design to engineer affordances and nudge behavior like this. It promotes the kind of productivity, collaboration, and spontaneous innovation that they want, which would be impossible in a cubicle situation. But what's in it for you? I mean, beyond a nice cafe, and I'm guessing some pretty choice snacks. Well, Pete's talking about creating a home-like environment at work. You can do many different things at home because of the way that the space is set up and how comfortable you feel. What would that look like at work? You will see in our offices, every single one of our offices, that we have like a mix of different kinds of spaces and they're really designed to accommodate the different types of personalities and working styles. Mandira Mita is the design lead on the culture team at a company called Shopify. Humans are super complex and having a variety allows employees to choose what works for them based on their personal preference or what kind of projects they're working on. Think about your workday. How many different tasks do you do? Or how do you feel in the morning compared to the afternoon? For me specifically, like many tasks in a day that require different things and each of the different working spaces allows me to get them done more quickly. So if I need to solve a problem with my team, I'll go to my pod with my team and work on that problem together in that room. But when I need to maybe do a performance review for one of my reports, I'll go into a phone booth, close the door and have a private working space that I can get that done in. And then when I'm feeling a little bit more social and I'm doing maybe more like admin work, I'll go work in like a living room that's an open space so that people can come and see me and I can have casual conversations. We want to create an environment so that people can grow and do their best work and we're not allowing people to do their best work if we confine them to a one-size-fits-all approach. 
Mandira is describing a differentiated, personalized office that takes into account various working styles or preferences and task-specific needs. Employee-focused companies spent a lot of time studying how their employees want to work and money designing these spaces. But then something totally unexpected happened right after we spoke to Mandira. People completely stopped going to the office. COVID-19 is going to dramatically change the way we design buildings, both temporarily and permanently. Arjun Kaker co-heads the analytics and insights team at Zaha Hadid Architects. Whether that's through social distancing, whether that's by putting screens up, whether that's using touchless, contactless technology that means people don't have to come into physical contact with communal surfaces like doorknobs or elevator buttons so much. The extent of these changes over time will depend on things like whether there's a vaccine. But as people head back to the office, companies must design and plan not just for personalization, but also much more now for health and safety. So in the short term, Arjun sees a possible move away from open concept shared desks back to cubicles, but with a modern design. I don't think it will be the, the fabric screens of the old cubicles. There's more likely to be plexiglass screens. There's even types of glass where at the switch of a button, the glass can go from being completely transparent to being opaque, where people can have them completely transparent much of the day. But when they want more privacy, they can press a button and these can become more uh, translucent or opaque. But the future workplace will still have to solve for collaboration, socializing, and personalization even if we're in cubicles again. Designers will look to some of the personalization that employees got used to while working from home. So we are going to move towards more space for people, more individualization, more adaptable to different types of work. One thing is, of course, sit-stand desks, which, which do that. Another thing is people having more control over the temperature, over the lighting, having much better technology so they can do much better video conferencing from their desk, but video conferencing that doesn't distract people around them. So really having a much better control of acoustics. At the same time, it's important to recognize that for some people, working from home was actually neither enjoyable nor even doable. In some cases, it highlighted socioeconomic disparity and favored privilege. Companies will need to be sensitive to this if they go digital first with their workplaces. And the longer we work from home, the question will be, how supported are you in doing that? Have they got a good chair to sit on? Have they got a good table to sit at? Do they have the right lighting? Uh, even providing individualized consultations with staff, just to give them ideas of things they could do that they might not have thought of already in the house. Consultations, home office subsidies, and even someone to purchase all of this stuff instead of each employee taking time to buy it themselves. Also, things like providing decent Wi-Fi and Wi-Fi extenders. These are things to ask about when a company is structured for remote work. But if it's an office situation, next time you visit one, assess what the design says about the company. Is the employee experience a priority for them? Are they customizing the space to take care of their employees? 
And then think about your decision spreadsheet. Is this data important to you? Okay, we've talked about one of the big areas of the employee experience that will help you determine if you're at the right company or not, the environment or the physical setup. Now, let's look at technology. What are the right tools for the job? The more uh, ahead of the curve companies are talking about it during the interview process, they're taking that same mindset that they applied to the customer side, and now they're really focusing it on, on their own employee. Joe Berger is a senior director at Worldwide Technology. And on the flip side, what we're even seeing is that the candidates are starting to ask about what are the tools you're going to give me to do my job. He helps companies understand how employees want to use technology. And his key point is that employees want the digital tools they use at work to resemble the ones they use at home. I mean, you've got a whole generation about to enter the workforce that grew up with Alexa in their bedroom. Just think about what your personal devices allow you to do. As we talk about the employee experience, and this is where we talk about the sort of any, 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 any device, anytime, anywhere. My work has to be able to, to follow me kind of along the path to be able to enable me to get that job done. This became a major need when so many of us started working from home. Something that used to be a nice to have suddenly became essential. And it's especially important if you're interacting with customers. Let's say you work in a call center and your customers are talking to you across a few devices, but you can't do the same. It's enabling them to have that kind of real-time data to address it without having to tell the customer, repeat who you are, give me your information again. It's like nothing drives a consumer more mad than having to do the same thing over and over again without resolution. And I know it makes a lot of you mad too, because there's a direct correlation between customer satisfaction and employee satisfaction. And then there's the changing nature of work and the technology required to accommodate it. I'd say over the past five to 10 years, we've gone to more of this model of team of teams where you're going to be a part of different teams with different timelines. But I've got smaller working groups that have to be very agile in the way we work. That's where you've seen the rise of things like Microsoft Teams, Slack, WebEx Teams. There's a number of these vendors out there doing this. Joe is talking about the increasingly collaborative nature of work. We're working with more and more teams, so our communication across and between those teams needs to be seamless. This requires digital platforms that are referred to as open. Now I can communicate very quickly uh, in real time with multiple teams, different departments, very fast. I can see in real time what changes have been made to my spreadsheet, and uh, I can see who made them, and we can we can work in real time with each other. I'm not missing a step just because I was out on vacation last week. I can catch up very quickly to all of this. As you consider the role technology should play in the right company, let's check with Michael, the guy stuck at the wrong company. What did his job look like? The old firm um, had a really suburban industrial park vibe, beige everything, beige carpet, beige walls, beige cubicles, beige desks. Ironically, Michael was working at a design company, but that wasn't the worst part. There was kind of like a, a lack of vision or of a sense of purpose or mission within the firm. You know, for example, there just was very little investment in things like social events or personal development or education. I think it's hard in that environment to create the, the culture and to foster a culture of support and 
recognition and camaraderie. Michael came to understand that culture mattered more to him than the chance to build experience. And culture is the third thing we're going to look at. It might be the most important part of the employee experience. I like to think of corporate culture as the side effects of working for your organization. Sort of like you were taking a drug. This is Jacob Morgan again, the guy who studies the employee experience. And the side effects can be good or the side effects can be bad. But the point is you need to think of it of what happens to you when you are part of that company. Do you feel a sense of growth and empowerment? Are you learning new things? Or are you stressed out and anxious? What do you get as a result of working there? Understanding workplace culture will be the main focus of this series. Because nothing can make you feel stuck at work, like when your company's values don't fit with your own, where you don't feel like you can speak your mind, and if you're not given the chance to develop your skills. So we'll be talking a lot more about that stuff in future shows. But for now, back to Michael. He spun his wheels at the wrong company for close to two years. He was stuck. I realized that I was in a bad spot. One of the things I did to cope with that is to really focus on other things that were going on in my life. That period is, is you know, really poor one for career development. But in terms of personal development, it was actually, I think, a fairly rich one. I had some good relationships. I discovered sports in a way that I had never before. I had become much more active and healthy. I found a balance in a weird way. And it was by finding that personal balance that he started to slowly become unstuck. I did a thing where I said, you know, okay, I'm just going to spend this one evening a week or a couple hours a week focusing on the job hunt. It was one of those things where it was a combination of personal and professional relationships and just being able to walk into a room and understand what the the firm was about, having had a, a small past relationship with some of the people there and being able to st- to kind of talk confidently about their work, what I wanted to do, and how I fit into that. By collecting and analyzing the data, Michael finally ended up at the right company. He got a bit lucky, too. I'm really fortunate to have ended up where I did because I think that um, some of the things that I had wanted in a position, in hindsight, were probably things that I would not have excelled at. Among other things, he found a place that played to his strengths. So the space is very bright and airy. There are uh, plants everywhere. Everything is, is, is custom designed. I think everybody takes a lot of pride in it. With the right tools? Where I'm at now is a place that has a really strong focus on keeping up with uh, latest technology, ensuring that they are producing the best work with the best tools. And the right culture. There is an opportunity for people at all levels and in all positions to make really meaningful contributions to to the work. There's always a range of things going on that don't relate specifically to day-to-day work, but are more around skill development, social events, knowledge building. It's clear that they are taking an active interest, not just in their kind of financial bottom line, but in the the health and well-being and, and careers of the, of the people there. As more companies commit to nurturing the employee experience, one that meets your needs around things like culture, tech, and physical space, the data you need to make the right decision about the right company for you should become easier to collect. Just like you're not always going to find 
the your future spouse on the first date on the very first date that you go to, right? I mean, it takes time. It's work. Jacob Morgan brings it back to the idea of a relationship. Not just going to the interviews and showing up, but asking, you know, can you talk to some of the other employees who are there? Are you able to just show up one day and just kind of co-work out of the space just to hang out for a little bit? See what people are saying about the organization. How companies act in crisis situations can say a lot. For example, when COVID-19 hit, how companies treated employees, good or bad, was well-documented on social media. And as we heard in the last episode, do some research on a company's track record around diversity and inclusion. Does their diversity statement actually translate into a visibly inclusive organization? And do they take action, not just bold stances, on systemic racism? Don't assume that you just have to go with what you're told during the interview process. Because I can tell you that the organizations who are proud of their culture, the organizations who believe that they have these great environments, will have no problem saying, sure, walk around, talk to whoever you want. In the end, the company that works for you is the right company. Consider which elements of the employee experience are important to you. Does the company offer the right tools and the right space in which to do your work? Does the culture align with your values? Will the role play to your strengths and passions? Is this a growth industry with exciting opportunities for career development? Put all of this into your decision spreadsheet and crunch the data for yourself. But wherever you land, even at the most right company, there will be other things to deal with especially when it comes to the culture bucket of the employee experience. So in future episodes, we'll be looking at how to navigate your professional relationships and how to advance in your career. That's coming up on For the Love of Work, an original podcast made possible by Rogers. In the meantime, you can also find us at fortheloveofwork.ca. I'm Sonia Kang. Thanks for listening.